We are not limited by money, but rather by the poverty of our own dreams. Doug Weed. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 187. With a release of one of our original interviews that we conducted long before we launched this podcast back on March of 2014, in memory of my mentor, presidential historian, and advisor to two American presidents, Doug Weed, who passed away unexpectedly on Friday, December 10th. I wanted to include this interview with Doug that I did over eight years ago on this podcast because the knowledge and ideas he shared with me back then are relevant for us all today. This interview has not been released to the public as it was one of the expert interviews in the Jumpstart to Success program that I created for the school market. For those new or returning guests, welcome. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of you listening, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies that we can use to improve our productivity in our schools, our sports, and workplace environments. Before I get to the interview, I want to explain how I came to meet Doug and how he helped us with our vision to make an impact in the field of education because it's not every day that we can call the advisor to two American presidents a friend. I knew I was so very lucky to have this connection. It began when I worked in sales for Bob Proctor in the late 90s and Doug Weed came in as a speaker for one of the programs we were offering. I still have my notes from his session and will never forget the power of the triple braided cord or the incredible power that's created when two or more people join together to brainstorm ideas. He talked of the importance of brainstorming and networking to take your ideas to new heights. He introduced me to Roger Schaefer from Canyonville Academy in Portland, Oregon, who further inspired me with his stories of his students who were making incredible strides with the Oregon stock market games. This semi-annual competition was sponsored by Portland State University and the Oregon Council of Economic Education, and I learned that Schaefer, a track coach, had been teaching topics to students for years around financial literacy which we know is a topic underrepresented in our schools. Many ideas began for me that day. Doug was kind and thoughtful, and it was obvious he had years of public speaking experience because when he spoke, he made it seem like he was talking directly to you. I was moved to the core when he pointed to the crowd and belted for us to get up and do something for what we believed in and adding to the fact that so few people will actually do this. Most will just let their dreams drift by, but for the few that heard him, there's no doubt they took action. I seriously thought he was looking at me, as I had this vision of taking the ideas I was learning from Bob Proctor at that time, working with those teens to create a program for the school market. I had just started writing the curriculum when I had met Doug, and then when I saw what Roger was doing at Canyonville with financial literacy, I decided I'd better do something with this idea to take character and leadership into our schools. 
A few years later, when I saw an RFP come through for a character education and leadership grant that was to be made for providers with curriculum to work with Arizona schools, I knew it was time, and this was exactly what I had envisioned. Before I submitted my application to be one of those providers, I saw they were looking for programs that consisted of certain character traits like integrity, and we had that in our program. But there was one part of the program I didn't know how to write, and it was that providers of this grant had to include civics education. And I had no idea how to write these lessons. I think I had about a week to create them because I was a Canadian citizen at that time living in the U.S., I knew very little about the U.S. government and how it operates, and this was five years before I passed my citizenship test prior to being naturalized. So I thought, who do I know who understands the U.S. government? And I thought for a bit, and I remembered Doug Weed, who, while we were working together back then, said, excuse me for a minute, and he left the room to make a phone call to the current U.S. president, George W. Bush, at that time. I knew I had to reach out to Doug Weed and ask if he could help me out with this requirement. It wasn't something I was jumping up and down to do because no one likes asking other people for help. But I'm sure you've noticed when someone has risen to the top of their field, they usually recognize when someone really does need help. And more times than not, you'll receive exactly what you need just by asking for it. I found Doug's email and explained the requirement needed. He not only agreed to the interview, but from that moment on became a huge supporter of our work we're doing in the schools, and he offered to help in any way he could at any time. We were accepted as preferred providers for this character ed grant from 2014 to 2020, and I'd love to share his interview with you today and remind you that when you get that feeling to contact someone like I did with Doug, to listen to that feeling, take action, and like Doug said, Get up and do something. Don't just sit there waiting for life to happen. Make it happen yourself. Like the quote I read at the beginning of this episode, it's not the lack of money that limits us, but the lack of our ability to take action on our dreams in the big ways that would move the needle. If you need help, never be afraid to reach out to someone who pops into your head like Doug did for me. Taking action on these types of thoughts, I know Jack Canfield would say, would be called inspired action, and only the select few do this. For those who do, they'll be shocked that additional resources often come their way just from the fact they did something instead of nothing. Let's meet the author of more than 30 books, who had a special talent of being able to connect history to his work, and as Craig Shirley, who often appeared with him on television interviews, noted, he believed in telling the facts about history as they were. Here's Doug Weed on the greatest and best U.S. presidents. Doug, with all of your experience in research as a presidential historian, And with your trilogy of books, you wrote The Raising of a President that's fascinating, All the President's Children. Can you share with us who you think would be the best and greatest president and why? (laughs) Well, I think George Washington was a great president because he set the precedent for so much of what followed. Uh, He very easily could have shaped the presidency into 
uh, an absolute dictatorship, uh, but he was very careful to preserve the original spirit of the American Revolution and the original dream of these founding documents and the founding fathers. And he walked away from power. You don't see that. <laughs> People are dragged away from power, kicking and screaming. <laughs> he may be the only person who left the White House uh, joyful. <laughs> but I take that back. The White House wasn't built yet. <laughs> Absolutely. And George Washington is someone that we all need to know. Um, currently, I'm studying for my citizenship, and he's the first one that we, we study. Um, and some of his attributes, would you say that he was a generous president? Yes, he was very generous in, in spirit and in heart. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're, the more you study these presidents, the more human they become. Uh, for example, uh, George Washington had a romance with his neighbor's wife. He, was very, he started corresponding with her again. Uh, when he was uh, leaving the presidency, when he was in New York. Uh, we don't like to talk about that. Uh, he wore wooden teeth, so he kept his mouth shut. A lot of the times when people thought he was so wise and so dignified, it had to do with him <laughs> being self-conscious about his wooden teeth. He'd just keep his mouth shut and stand there with dignity. So the more you study these people, the more human they become. But I think the fact that Americans idealize and make heroes out of their presidents uh, reveals more about them than it does the presidents. Uh, we want to have heroes, and we want them up there in marble on pedestals, and uh, uh, that tells a little bit about who we are. That's very true. Do you have any other examples of a president that you think is a great leader? Yes, many. Uh, uh, most of the presidents were great leaders, uh, some good or bad. And there are institutes, the Siena Institutes and others that, that have their uh, rankings of the great presidents. It's almost always political. It has to be. <laughs> That's the nature of things. But uh, uh, FDR is rated often as a great president. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln, of course, is a great president because he held the union together. There are revisionist historians who are troubled by, uh, for example, Lincoln's uh, uh, canceling of the writ of habeas corpus and other very hard decisions that he had to take to hold the union together. Uh, and so you constantly have revisionists. Theodore Roosevelt is seen as a great president. But again, there are uh, revisionists in history who say, well, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt started a war with Colombia, created a nation that never previously existed, Panama, so that we could build a canal and have uh, uh, an, our Navy on two oceans, the Pacific and the Atlantic, and move them back and forth quickly for our defense. Today, we're criticizing Russia because it is occupying the Crimea. <clears throat> And it's really much more complicated than that. The first capital of Russia was Kiev, uh, which is the capital of the Ukraine. And uh, Sevastopol, the great port in the Crimea, has been Russia's outlet to the Black Sea uh, for many, many generations, as long as America's been a country. So uh, the United States, 
seized the Panamanian region, made a deal with 15 prominent oligarch families there, created a country that had never existed, Panama, so we could have our canal for defensive purposes, and nations continue to do that. But we call Theodore Roosevelt a great president. He was a great president. He's up there on Mount Rushmore. But uh, these great presidents are also quite controversy, controversial. Theodore Roosevelt once said, every generation needs to taste uh, a war, a good war. Well, if Hitler said something like that, it, it put chills down our spine. Because, because it was Theodore Roosevelt, we, <laughs> we take that in good humor uh, and dismiss it. But Theodore Roosevelt, definitely uh, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, uh, who ended the Cold War. We have to remember, going into the Reagan era, uh, people were describing it as the time of the Soviets. It was the time for communism. Henry Kissinger was picked up by a microphone at uh, a social event in Canada uh, saying to his dinner partner that this is the era of the Soviet Union, acknowledging the uh, transcendent power of the Soviet Union and of communism, and that uh, it was seen that we couldn't keep our fingers in the dike, we couldn't stop it from happening worldwide. But Ronald Reagan had the vision to see that this was corrupt, and we had to call it corrupt, and to stand up to it, very unpopular in the media at the time. Now everybody loves him back then. Uh, he was called a warmonger, a racist. He had a lot of charges were leveled at him. Uh, but he stayed true to his purpose, and he ended the Cold War. You could say Abraham Lincoln saved the nation, and you could say that Ronald Reagan saved the world by ending the Cold War and ending this threat uh, of uh, a nuclear annihilation between the two superpowers. So those are a few of the great presidents. Well, that's that's wonderful. And when I was studying your website and I was, um, having a look at some of the things that you had talked about, you talked about a formula for leadership that I thought was very powerful and a mama's boy and an absent father. Can you give some examples of um, where you've seen that with some of the presidents? Yes, this was not something, Andrea, that I was looking for. This was something that forced itself on me. It's unavoidable. Uh, most of the American presidents. In fact, most leaders uh, in history tend to be mama's boys, and they usually have an absent father somewhere in the story. This isn't a law or a rule. It isn't absolute. It isn't universal. But it's very, very common. Washington, great leaders. Jefferson, uh, evil leaders. Stalin, Hitler, uh, all mama's boys with a father who died when they were young or abandon the family. Um, Barack Obama's father walked out on the family when he was two years old. Um, even the candidates that run, uh, John McCain, uh, his father was never home. George Herbert Walker Bush says, I was never there. Barbara raised him. And this is a very common uh, experience. In fact, Many of the American presidents are literally named <laughs> after their mother. Ronald Wilson Reagan is named after his mother, Nellie Wilson. And we know the Kennedys. Uh, there were many Kennedy boys, but only one 
was named after his mother, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, named after Rose Fitzgerald. Um, uh, you, you can go all the way back into history. Rutherford Birchard Hayes, named after his mother, Sophia Birchard. And uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, named after his mother, Sarah Delano. In fact, she used to say to him, you're a Delano, you're not a Roosevelt, you're a Delano. <laughs> and uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, named after his mother, Rebecca Baines. Richard Milhouse Nixon, named after his mother, Hannah Milhouse. It goes all the way back into history. It, uh, when I first started writing about this, uh, I had historians write me back, said I never have noticed that before. They said it sent chills down our spine when we would read it. It is an uncanny, either it's a coincidence or something's going on here. And I've been studying it for many years, and I, I think I understand what's going on. What troubled me is that America's prisons are filled with young men who are mama's boys, who have an absent father. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking, wait a second, is this some terrible poison that destroys most men, but for some odd reason, uh, this is very Nietzsche, but for some odd reason it provokes greatness in, in a few uh, uh, anomalies, in a, in a few men. And for a while that's what I thought until one day I was going to a TV show and my uh, chauffeur, my driver, uh, he, he, I was explaining this to him to get his opinion. He said, well, have you ever studied those absent fathers? I said, what do you mean? Well, they're absent fathers, but did you do their bios? What did the son think of that absent father? And bingo, that was the difference. Uh, many people whose lives end tragically have an absent father who they despise and who hurt them and they uh, are in anger. And others have internalized this and see their fathers as heroic, even though they're absent. McCain's father was this great admiral. Uh, Obama, when he speaks of his father, he writes dreams of my father. He sees his father as a man of integrity, not as someone who abandoned him, but as someone who went back to Africa. And all these Africans would, get, would go to France or England or America. They'd get their education and they'd promise, I'm going to come back and help you. Don't worry, I'll be right back here to help you. But they all would go on to careers in the West. Obama's father came back to do something in his own country, in his own land. That's how Obama processed it. His father was a hero, uh, not a villain. And that seems to be the formula. They have a mother who loves them. Uh, Sigmund Freud said that uh, a man is empowered if he is perceived to be the favorite of his mother. They have this sense of empowerment from the mother who loves them, and they have this sense of challenge to prove something to this absent father who they admire. Uh, it's... Uh, a fascinating study. It really is. And I wonder, does it go both ways for women? Did, was there any study? Of this? And that's another question that I wanted to ask you about the likelihood of us ever seeing a, a women in, in office. 
Well, I think we will see a woman president, uh, and I think it, you know, it could happen in 2016, could happen right away, but I, I believe we will see uh, women elected to higher office. As far as understanding those dynamics, they don't automatically work in reverse. <laughs> and uh, it's going to take a lot of women leaders and women presidents before we can see a pattern uh, like these patterns that we can see among the men. So I, I've, uh, I've thought about it, I've looked for patterns, but it's premature to, to know what's going on there in the relationship between uh, a daughter and father and daughter and mother and how they're challenged uh, um, to do great things with their lives. Wonderful. Well, if we could talk a little bit about President Obama and what you think, how is he doing as a, a great president? Well, the election of, of Barack Obama is so historic. It is such a unusual moment in American history. I mean, these founding fathers who wrote these uh, noble words, all men are created equal, own slaves. And now an African-American is president. It's, uh, uh, I was asked uh, by Katie Couric during the inauguration time, the first time around, for a historical comparison. You can't find a historical comparison for this moment within presidential history. You have to go outside of presidential history to the landing of a man on the moon or to Joan of Arc or to some other event in history to compare with the significance of the election of Barack Obama as president. So it, just his election and his re-election is itself a tremendous moment in history, a great moment and a linchpin, a turning moment in history. His actual presidency as judged on itself, if it were purely judged on numbers, is really tough. You can't just blame it on your predecessor. Uh, Nixon, for example, he, he can say, well, Lyndon Johnson did the same thing. And Lyndon Johnson, uh, but Richard Nixon is responsible for his presidency, the fact that he lost it politically and had was forced to resign. He's responsible as president to anticipate that the public is changing, the me attitude of the media is changing, that, that he could lose his presidency and not blame it on a predecessor. You can't say that John Tyler was a great president because he worked to bring Texas into the Union. You have to say that James K. Polk brought Texas into the Union, even though his predecessor laid the groundwork. You have to give credit to Bill Clinton for balancing the budget, even though his predecessor, Ronald Reagan, ended the Cold War, which allowed for the peace dividend a huge uh, abundance of money available that was not previously available that made it possible for a president to balance the budget. So you can't blame George W. Bush totally for the economic uh, disaster of recent years under President Barack Obama. So if he's judged by unemployment rate and he's judged strictly by the numbers, the stimulus did not produce the jobs he said it would produce it, by our own government records. His records, it produced none. The NSA, on the NSA watch, that could be very controversial in history. 
to have uh, members of his own party uh, say that they're being spied upon by the CIA. Those are <laughs> those are going to be tough moments for historians to review and wonder about. Uh, and people of color and people of poverty are are going to once more look for someone like Obama with humble origins and see if they can end uh, the the corruption, the economic corruption uh, that has been that has uh, uh, really paralyzed our economy and hurt our economy. Right now, you have corporate welfare, you have uh, welfare of the poor, but you have great companies earning hundreds of millions of dollars uh, off of the uh, uh, taxpayers' backs, and it's a tremendous drain on the economy. So the Obama presidency, great moment in history, his election. He's, uh, he has the political skills of a Ronald Reagan he reminds me of Reagan because he uh, does not become bitter over the attacks that he goes through and that he's experiencing. The actual numbers from unemployment and government numbers measuring the economy, for example, are not good. But it's not over. So we'll see what happens. All right. And history does reveal itself. That's what uh, I've learned from you. Now, on a personal note, though, he's doing very well with, um, you know, raising his children in the public eye. He's brought an orderliness and discipline to his lifestyle. Um, how does that um, affect our the public's view of Obama and anyone else that has also been in the public eye? Well, I think that that Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are two of the best parents, presidential parents that I've studied or seen. Uh, most of these presidential parents are very uh, indulgent. Uh, it's almost like they know they haven't been with their children like they should. <laughs> and so out of guilt, they want to make up for it now that they're president. And uh, they give them anything they want and lavish opportunity and power on them. That's very, very common. Uh, Lincoln, Grant, and even into modern times. Uh, but you don't see Obama's girls in the newspapers. They're not getting drunk. They're not in trouble at school. They're, uh, they, the Obamas have brought the two things that, uh, that we've learned are important in parenting, and that is uh, love and structure. Uh, they've brought some discipline, which is very hard to do uh when you're in the white house because you're very very busy but uh they've been tremendous parents and they have learned from the mistakes of many of their predecessors through history and i think that malia and sasha are going to have a good life because of the structure that their parents have brought to them and the love when i say the love when the president says we're going to go to chicago he keeps his promise for the kids and uh, he's allowed them to experience history. He took them to Moscow with him. Uh, he, he's got a good balance between keeping them in school with everybody else and yet a perspective that this is not a normal situation. You're coming with me to South Africa and you're going to meet Mandela. So 
uh, I really admire them as president, as uh, parents, They're great parents. And I know that you've also had relationships with, um, like President Ford has been in your home. What was he like as a as a person, and not just a, as a president? Well, I I tell you, it's very interesting. I have this theory about presidential candidates that I I call uh, dumb and duller, and that is most Republican presidents throughout history, uh, the public perceives them as dumb. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was referred to by one of his uh, cabinet members to his wife in letters as our dear imbecile. And many people thought that Lincoln was out of his element. His stories that we have grown to love in history uh, people would roll their eyes when he would tell them in his own lifetime. They, they were homespun and they were considered country. And, uh, but Lincoln is considered a genius today. Gerald Ford was considered dumb. Uh, Ronald Reagan, they said, was dumb. Um, the president I served, George Herbert Walker Bush, they used to make fun of him because he would read, he was the director of the CIA, but he'd read Robert Ludlam instead of John le Carre. So they said, oh, he's dumb. And of course, George W. Bush, everybody says he's dumb. <laughs> but but uh, they aren't dumb. And uh, the Democrats, they would say, are dull. They'd say, Dukakis is too dull. He's wooden. He's stiff. Gore, he's too dull dull. What's wrong with him? His speeches are boring. In 1988, Bill Clinton gave a speech to the Democrat National Convention, and they all went to sleep. It was an hour and a half long, and the TV cameras were showing pictures of people on the floor of the convention sleeping. And one of the uh, commentators said uh, on national TV, well, well, this guy's just ruined his political career. Four years later, he was president of the United States. So I call it dumb and duller. And you look back to high school, who got elected president of the high school of your class or your room? It wasn't the richest or the smartest or the most popular, especially, or the best looking. There's, there's another quality here. It's the, it's the art of offending the least. And what we see as boring is part of the science and the art of politics. And when I had Gerald Ford in my home, uh, what shocked me <laughs> was how smart he was. He's a policy wonk. So I thought I'd have some good conversations with him about policy and some of my views. And <laughs> I, was, I was out of my league. I quickly realized I was totally uninformed on his level to talk policy. And uh, that reminded me that, that uh, it takes real skill to advance that far politically, and it takes talent. And it's not entertainment. It's not charisma. The things that make you a great entertainer are not the things that would make you a great politician. A great entertainer wants to is charismatic, wants to make people laugh and cry. If you make people laugh and cry and you're a politician, you're in trouble. <laughs> See, it's so fascinating to hear your stories, Doug. I want to thank you so much. We're nearing the end of, of the time slot. I want to respect the time what we've we've got for you here. And I want to thank you so much for inspiring me. I heard you speak about over 10 years ago and you boomed from the pulpit. You said, get up and make a difference. 
and it hit me here. I've got to do something more. So I want to thank you for the inspiration you've given me and for this of appearing in the Jumpstart to Success program. And I'm just curious, I want to end on how did you decide to get involved in the White House? How, I, I can see some um, traces of it when I look at dougweed.com. I can see all about uh, all the interviews you've done, all about your books, but where did it start for you? For, for me, it started with uh, wanting to help uh, dying people in the famine in Cambodia. I, I went over there and tried to see if there was anything I could do. I think I just got in the way, but I kept persisting. And within a few days, uh, met with some other people, an entertainer, Pat Boone, and his son-in-law, Dan O'Neill, and uh, Cardinal Law, who, the man who became the Cardinal of Boston. And we got some things going, and out of that came charitable work. And from the charitable work came a relationship with the Carters, and then the Reagans, and the, the Bushes, and on and on it went. So that's where it began. It began by wanting to feed people who were starving to death. Wow. And your your speech 10 years ago was about the triple braided cord and and the relationships that you form over the years. And so you've just proven right there how important it is that when you're out doing things that you never know who you're who you're first of all inspiring and who you're going to end up working with. That's very true. Congratulations on what you're doing. This is a great program. Thank you so much, Doug. We'll keep you posted. And if anyone wants to learn more about Doug Weed, DougWeed.com. And you have a wonderful day today. Thank you. Thank you. You too, Andrea. Take care now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. What a man. Doug had an incredible career working in the White House, inspiring many around the world, and it all began with his vision to feed people who were starving to death in Cambodia. In 1970, he co-founded the Charity Awards and was a part of founding Mercy Corps, who has distributed $2 billion of food and medicine around the world, and my hope is that he has inspired you in some way to take action with your goals, whatever they might be. With that, we say goodbye to an incredible man, and I've got to say this is one connection. I am so grateful that I wasn't too afraid to reach out to him for help. <laughs>